The information in today's episode is not to be used as medical advice. If you are currently struggling with or dealing with something out of the ordinary, we highly recommend talking directly to your provider. Welcome to the Flow State Podcast, where we're all about finding balance. We're your hosts, Monica Groney and Nora Candido. Now let's get into the flow. Welcome back, Flow Staters. I am so excited for today's episode. I mean, I'm excited for every episode, but today is going to be the girls kind of chat room or group chat that you've always wanted. And maybe you're on this level with your friends, and I hope that you have girlfriends in your life that you can talk about these things with. But today we're really going to get into the more nitty gritty details of your cycle that are questions that a lot of you asked us that we are here to answer and kind of group into some organized thoughts here, hopefully. But Monica, where are you in your cycle right now? I actually just started bleeding this morning. Congratulations. Thank you. My husband and I have this joke of like, every time I get married, he's like, congrats, you're a woman. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I think so many of us can relate to, I mean, our cycle is like always changing, always evolving. And every month we're like, what is this? Is this normal? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Like that's the constant question. And Nora and I have definitely been getting DMs of from all of you out there being like, this happened to me. Is this normal? This cycle was like this. Is this normal? So we're really just going to talk about what is normal, what isn't normal, and really dive into all that today. Yeah, I think big takeaways is that every person is individualized and every cycle is individualized. So just getting to learn your body, this like body awareness, I call it our inner wisdom, and feeling attuned to what your body is telling you. If we just sat down and tried to compare what somebody else is experiencing to our own experience, this extends beyond just our period, but we would go crazy. So don't get hung up on any one or all of these things and view this as purely just information. Maybe this helps to make you feel affirmed in some things that you're feeling, or maybe it brings up some questions that you need to have a conversation with your doctor, your provider. So I'm hoping that that's the purpose of this conversation today, and I want to get into it. All right, let's dive (laughs) in. Okay, so first we are going to talk about just what a healthy cycle looks like in terms of length, all of that. So cycle length, Nora. Yeah, so cycle length can vary anywhere between 21 to 35 days. And from the onset of our period, the first time we're getting or going through puberty, those cycles can actually be longer. And when we're going through perimenopause or menopause transition, they can be so sporadic. You can have short cycles, you can have long cycles. So for our majority of our fertile years, they should fall between those 21 to 35 days. Long cycles can mean different things. Short cycles can mean different things. (laughs) Yeah. And I think too, it varies. Like a lot of people have asked questions around coming off birth control and all of those different things. So your cycle will change too. Like we talked about, you know, 
every month is going to be different. So if one month you have a 21 day cycle, the next month you have 25 day cycle, like those are just data points. And that's why it's so important as individuals that we're tracking our cycle and not necessarily comparing outwardly, but being like, what's the norm for me? What's my average length, average day length? And then just by knowing that and having our own body awareness, we're able to then see like, okay, this data point is way off from my norm. What can I determine from that? Yeah. And great point, like cycle variance. So the changes from like my cycle from January to February to March, anywhere up to seven days is actually considered to be normal. So I know that was a question that somebody asked. And I do see sometimes an interesting pattern of like, two kind of similar cycles and then one outlier, like the third one might be a little bit longer. And we have to go back to thinking about the whole, the main event of our cycle. Well, firstly, and this is the point we've talked about often on the podcast, is that day one of your cycle is the day you start heavy bleeding or like truly bleeding. It's not the few days of spotting leading up to it. It's when you have actual menstrual flow. So in order for you to even start tracking your cycle, we have to be accounting correctly. (laughs) Yeah, like for example, I say I got my period this morning, but yesterday there was brown. Like, you know, I was wiping, there was brown, there was some spotting. And today there was like red blood. And it's like today is day one. Yesterday I could be like, it's coming, but it's not quite here yet. (laughs) Exactly. And those like two-ish days or so of spotting leading up to your cycle is actually the tail end from your last cycle. So just when we'll dive into this a little bit more when we talk about the color of what our blood should look like in our period, but those like spotting days leading up to our cycle is leftover blood that has been oxidized, so exposed to air, which makes it turn darker, and that is coming out before the new blood is coming out afterwards. Totally normal though. Hey there, it's your host, Nora, your dietitian. Many of you have been reaching out to me to find out the best way to come off of hormonal birth control. I'm super excited. My group program called Harmonize that I created just for this reason, based off my own personal story, is now reopened. We're changing things up this year where you can join at any point Our meetings are weekly, where you have tailored tips to help your body go through this transition, education, guest coaches, as well as a community to support you through it. Head over to the show notes to find the link to apply today. And just for anyone who's curious to learn more about longer cycles, shorter cycles, we'll dive into that a little bit, but we also on the Maria website, our symptom quiz holds some of that information as well. It asks you your cycle length and we share like what a short cycle could mean and what a long cycle could mean. So definitely go and use that as a resource too. Yeah. When I see really long cycles, that is a common trait for someone who might have PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that is something where you might not be ovulating, which we'll talk about, but having really, really long cycles. For some individuals, they can go months without a bleed months without ovulating. And that's definitely one where we want to get to the root of going on. 
I do want to give the caveat that coming off of birth control, there's something called like post-pill PCOS, where your body is just making this transition. It's coming off of the pill that has been suppressing those hormones for however long that you've been on it. And we have to give our body time to readjust. You cannot expect it's not just this switch that we flip on and off of, okay, we're taking the pill. Let's turn our hormone production off from the inside. Okay, we're off the pill. Now we're going to turn it back on. And that, you know, having that grace or understanding can be really, really helpful in the expectations of planning for conception coming off of any type of hormonal birth control. It doesn't just have to be the pill. That also includes our arm implant, the NuvaRing, the IUD, all but the copper IUD because it's non-hormonal. So those are some questions that we've gotten in the past as well, too, of like the differences between all of the different types of hormonal birth control. And that's something maybe we can go into at a later date, but for today's purpose, just talking about normal versus abnormal. Yeah. Okay. So long cycles can be signals of PCOS, thyroid. What do we see with short cycles? Short ER cycles typically means that we're not producing enough progesterone. So progesterone is actually produced following ovulation. So the follicle that houses the egg, once it is released from ovulation, that outside like exterior portion is called the corpus luteum. And that turns into like a secondary, what's called an endocrine gland. And our endocrine system is what produces our hormones. So that little like exterior capsule is how I envision it starts producing progesterone for actual months if you were to get pregnant until the placenta takes over, which is so interesting. But if you're not pregnant, that just gets reabsorbed after the max length for our luteal phase. The second half of our cycle is 16 days because that's the life cycle of that corpus luteum. So you can't have anything longer than 16 days in your luteal cycle. If you have a really long cycle, it's not due to having a long luteal phase. It's long follicular. Exactly. Yeah, that's a misconception. So yeah, shorter cycles I typically see with not making enough progesterone can also be like low vitamin D, under eating, stress, a lot of factors there. Those things all affect progesterone production. So it makes sense. Exactly, because they impact ovulation. Yeah. So that's the overall cycle length. But let's also talk about, and this is a question we got a lot about, was your actual period length. So we had a lot of people asking questions about, you know, I want to conceive, my period's only three days long, I'm concerned, is that healthy, blah, blah, blah. So let's go into actual, actually the bleed length. Yeah. So normal, typical bleed is anywhere from two to seven days. So you might personally just be someone who has less volume. That's not necessarily an indicator that you're not fertile. If you have short bleeds, you could have around 25 milliliters of blood loss is considered to be a really light flow, while the normal is around 50 milliliters. And I'll go into like what that looks like. And then a heavy flow is over 80 milliliters. So for typical blood loss of 50 milliliters is about three tablespoons, which is easiest to see if you're wearing like a menstrual cup or a disc. It's my preferred just because you get so much information from it. Yeah, I agree. And when you think about three tablespoons, you know, I think when we think about our periods, we're like, oh, it's a bloodbath. <laughs> like, and like three tablespoons isn't that much. 
Agreed. So I think this helps to quantify it too with like an actual soaked pad or tampon might look like a lot of blood, but it's actually only five milliliters. In a super tampon, it can be 10 milliliters, so twice as much. But still, you should only be having about six to eight of those like absolutely soaked menstrual products. And that's spread out over however many days for you. Yeah. I know for me, like there's really just one day where it's like, oh, bloodbath, you know? And so I think it is so interesting to actually wear a menstrual cup because you do get that experience of not only being able to see, okay, how much blood is it, but you can see the color and consistency, which this question came in a lot of, okay, I started wearing a cup and my blood is a lot thicker than I thought. You know, I'm noticing clumps or clots. Like, is that normal? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, especially going from someone being on hormonal birth control where maybe you got a bleed, which is technically a withdrawal bleed. It's not a true period. So your period blood or the withdrawal bleed blood that you're losing when you're on the pill or on some type of hormonal contraceptive is going to be thinner because you're not building up that same endometrial lining that you are when you're naturally cycling. So again, like just having that expectation of knowing it is going to look different. It should be thicker. There might be a few clots in it. The consistency might be different. The color might be different. All of those things because what you were accustomed to was not a true period that whole time. (laughs) And it can be like really alarming. I mean, I was on hormonal birth control for a long time. And like you're saying, you know, it's kind of like watery, whatever. And then you come off, you're looking in your cup and you can see skin cells. You can see the actual lining in your cup. So if you ask one of those questions and you're like, why do I see like clots or clumps? It's like, yeah, that's just your lining shedding and you're actually getting to see it, which Some people get grossed out. I'm like the one inspecting it and being like, how cool. (laughs) I think it's fascinating. We're like one of the only species that has a bleed. But even us, two thirds of our lining is actually reabsorbed. So for as much as you are seeing come out, know that your body is actually recycling, reusing those nutrients, things that it has been investing in all month long are getting reabsorbed back into your body. So this shouldn't be the thing that like, causes you to have really low iron. Like those are signs that I see if it's really heavy bleed or if there are other things going on. So if you're dealing with anemia, et cetera, like that's where we need to investigate even further what is contributing to that. For example, yeah, our actual blood that we're losing is a combination of all of those things you were just saying, Monica's. It's true blood, but it's also leftover cervical mucus and some of that endometrial lining. So those clots can be normal. In terms of size, we don't want to see anything larger than the size of a dime. So if you're seeing more or all of it is very heavy, that just means that your body is not great at thinning out that blood. And that can be due for a few different reasons or can be indicative of something like endometriosis, adenomyosis, which is obviously something we want to be assessed for by our doctor. So Warning signs would be clots, anything larger than the size of a dime. And again, if you're feeling that like absolute fatigue, question mark, anemia, we will also want to check that out. I'm glad that you talked about too, that like some of it is cervical mucus. So, and it's the blood getting mixed in with that because, you know, you pull out your cup and sometimes it is that like 
yolky, stickier, thicker feeling or looking blood, like stringy, if you will. And I think based off of some of the questions, people are like, oh, it's like a lot thicker than I expected. It's like, yeah, you're having like healthy cervical mucus and that's getting all blended together. So it doesn't have to be just like thin blood that you would see come out of a cut on your arm or something that's very drippy. It's mixed up with other bodily fluids. Exactly. And again, if you are used to wearing tampons, that's like going to absorb all of that. And it just kind of looks like one homogenous or consistent mixture versus now wearing a cup or a disc or even period underwear or pad where you can actually see more of the consistency. I think it's helpful just to have that experience at some point so that you can get a true reading of like what your cycle is actually like. I was going to say the last thing I want to touch on here is just the color of the blood itself. So I was talking briefly about like spotting in those couple of days leading up to your cycle. Brown means it's been exposed to air. That's the old stuff. And then as our period begins, it should be pretty bright in color, almost like a cranberry-ish color, um, cranberry juice color. So pretty dark. And then it can get a little bit lighter depending on your flow, how quickly it is coming out. And then it might get again, a little bit darker towards the end as that cycle has been more exposed to air. And you can experience spotting for like the last two or so days of your cycle. So I actually would count that as part of your bleed on the other end of your period, but not the spotting days leading up to it. Okay, so brown at the beginning, not part of your cycle, until you're back to like a clear-ish cervical mucus, you're kind of still on your period. Yeah, and I think that's a great thing and transition for us to talk about cervical mucus. So some people don't experience cervical mucus until right up until they start ovulating, and that can be normal. So the first half of our cycle, the follicular phase, especially during our period, is considered a dry phase because we're bleeding. There is not cervical mucus being produced. That is our natural lubrication. And cervical mucus has a huge purpose. It keeps our vaginal microbiome healthy. Like we have good bacteria that are down there doing their job for us. This is something that we can talk about when it comes to odor. And that was another big question that I was asked. So it serves multiple uses. Cervical mucus is meant fertilization. It helps sperm get to where they need to go efficiently. It is the vehicle for them to be swimming in, so to speak. So there's reason for it. And we should be experiencing that clear, sticky, translucent, egg white consistency mucus at least a a day or so leading up to ovulation and around ovulation. That is a very clear signal from your body that you have enough estrogen, that you are around your fertile time period. Some people, if they do experience cervical mucus before ovulation, that can look like almost lotion-y consistency or can be even a little bit drier than that. That typically means that we have more estrogen. Not that that's a bad thing, but we want to make sure that that cervical mucus is going from that like creamy, almost yellow or off-white consistency to still hitting that clear, slippery, when you go to wipe your toilet paper, like slides right off. It's like a slip and slide. (laughs) Exactly. That's like, all right, if you're trying to make a baby, that is the time. Yeah. If you're not, it's time to wrap it up. 
And then after ovulation, what does cervical mucus do? Just while we're talking about it. Yep. Again, so if you have more estrogen, we experience like a second little bump of estrogen of about five or so, depending on your cycle length, days leading up to your period. And for individuals, again, if you have a bit more estrogen, you're going to have more cervical mucus. So the more cervical mucus you have, the more estrogen that you have. Pretty plain and simple around that. That is really individualized. So I know this is something that you and I have talked about too specifically is what's normal in terms of like volume. And it's anywhere from a half of a teaspoon to a full teaspoon of discharge. So I really wanted to point out this difference because if, again, you've been on any type of hormonal birth control, part of the way that birth control works is that it suppresses that cervical mucus production so that sperm can't enter. They're not swimming. So if you are so accustomed to being dry, quote unquote, all the time, and then you start naturally cycling and it feels abundant, it feels very different. You're not used to experiencing this sensation. This is normal. It's actually good for us. Like I said, from the vaginal microbiome standpoint, but also for natural lubrication. Like if you are having painful intercourse, birth control It can literally just because your body's not able to produce that natural lubrication that we need. So that's a huge thing I just want to point out. Yeah, I think it can be alarming, you know, coming off birth control and then all of a sudden starting to ovulate and have the cervical mucus and you're just like, geez, my underwear are always dirty. (laughs) You know, I always feel wet down there. And yes, it is normal. Nora and I had this discussion while we were together last week and I was like, it is crazy down there. And then like, it really wasn't, it's normal, but it can feel like a lot in your underpants sometimes. Totally. And again, just like getting more used to it. But if you're uncomfortable with it and it's not a sensation that you enjoy by any means, maybe wearing like a really thin period underwear might be a helpful thing for you. That's going to help to absorb that a little bit, maybe make things a little bit more comfortable. That's one recommendation that I have. Awesome. Another question that came up a lot. So we've talked about cycle length, like bleeding length and cervical mucus. Let's talk about ovulation. A lot of people experience symptoms around ovulation. And I think because symptoms are so often talked about and thought about right before your period in your luteal phase, when people get ovulation symptoms, they're like, wait, is this normal? Yeah. Do you personally experience anything around ovulation? The only thing I experience around ovulation is I can just feel a twinge sometimes, which is like the egg actually being released. And it is interesting because if I remember to note it, I can tell that that's what it is because it almost alternates sides. But to me, I'm like, this is interesting. And yeah, sometimes you're like, oh, it's a little uncomfortable, but it's not super painful. It's literally like a pinch, a twinge. Exactly. Yeah. Fun words called middle schmertz. I just love that term. And yeah, totally normal to experience that. Ovulation is an event. It's like a period of time. So that mild cramping, it shouldn't last for days. It shouldn't last. It shouldn't be really intense. Somebody asked like if their ovulation cramping is more than their PMS cramping, is that normal? And I would say either you have no cramping leading up to your cycle that you just notice it around your ovulation only or something else is going on. And that can be something where maybe you do have 
question mark PCOS that we might need to investigate where multiple follicles are growing and only one egg is getting released. So you might be experiencing more of that cramping if there are multiple follicles growing at that time. So that's something that I would personally want to have checked out. But some mild twinge or cramping around ovulation is totally normal. What other symptoms do people experience around ovulation that are quote unquote normal or maybe not normal? Normal, I would say things like even mild breast tenderness is normal again because we have this huge peak in estrogen at ovulation. So if you're noticing a little bit of breast swelling or tenderness, just sensitivity, that can be normal. If it's again like excruciating or if it lasts for all of your luteal phase and leading up to your cycle, to me that's a clear sign that we have more estrogen. Body might not be managing those levels appropriately or getting rid of it appropriately and that's where we would need some support for sure. (laughs) Other ones that I would say are common but not necessarily normal are migraines. So similar with that estrogen shift again, this is something that I see in a lot of individuals. They experience mid-cycle migraines and that is typically due to this estrogen peak or fluctuation. Again, it's a sign to me that there might be too much estrogen in relationship to progesterone and we need to help body support that. Same leading up to cycle for those individuals if they also get migraines or headaches a few days before the cycle can be used for the same reason. Normal things are mood changes, energy changes, and even some skin changes. So we have increase in testosterone in the first half of our cycle as well. Testosterone can increase our sebum or our oil production. So you might notice that your skin is more prone to breakouts around this time, not just in the days leading up to your cycle. Again, that can be a sign that you just might have more of that androgen, the male-based hormone testosterone in your body. Normal though. Yeah. And I mean, talking even about skin, it just makes me think of like, they even say around ovulation, like your face is more symmetrical (laughs) because we're really like peacocking, if you will. (laughs) So I just think like, there's so many things that do change that we're not even aware of, or like, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And with that is odor as well. So around ovulation, your scent might be more attractive, those pheromones, to a partner or to the opposite gender. You might just seem more appetizing, so to speak, to somebody because we're mating. That's like the whole point. But in terms of like body odor and sweat in general, I just wanted to talk about this because a lot of people asked. If you notice sweat changes, the odor changing throughout the month, sweat smell is actually caused by the bacteria or yeast that is in that area. So if you're noticing foul changes or things going on, that can actually be more bacteria or yeast changes that are more cyclical for you. And that's where I would want to investigate. How often are you changing the razor that you're using? How often are you using deodorant? Does your deodorant have bacteria or yeast overgrowth on it? Do you use like a loofah or washcloth or something that you actually need to be replacing more frequently? More of those like hygiene things and yeast fungal overgrowth is really quite normal. Like there's a lot of yeast in our environment and that breeding ground is pretty dang prime for it. It has some moisture to it. It's trapped 
so it's warm and that's where bacteria and yeast will thrive. So that can be kind of like a check engine light that we might need to address some bacterial or fungal imbalances, even in like your armpit or even in your vaginal area. If you experience something like yeast changes or really dramatic odor changes or any point during your cycle. Yeah. One of the other things that came up super often in the questions was one-off periods being different. So maybe your normal cycle is 30 days and all of a sudden you have a 37-day cycle or all of a sudden you have a 50-day cycle. So what happens when one month is severely different than your norm? So I want to definitely dive into this. And I think it's We think that our normal is just going to be consistent and it's always going to be the same. And then we have something that's abnormal and we're like, why is this happening? But the great thing about our cycles is it is cyclical. And so based off of how we're supporting ourselves, what's going on in our life, our stress levels, our sleep, our cycles are the signal that's telling us like, hey, what you did last month, the month before, it's affecting me. And so again, it's just a data point and it's something to be aware of so that we can maybe like adjust moving forward to best support ourselves. So let's dive into that a little bit of those one-off cycles that are super abnormal. Yeah. In the beginning, when I was talking a little bit about cycle length, saying that some variance in between cycles is normal, like there are changes every day in our lives, in our nutrition, in our hydration, in our stress levels, if we get sick, all of those things impact our cycle. So the whole growth of the follicle that houses the egg that will be released to potentially get pregnant, the whole process is about 90 to 100 days it takes to go from start to finish. So we're born with all the eggs that we have, but the follicles, that little capsule around the egg grows and it takes about 90 days to mature. So if you got sick three months ago, if you, you know, somebody mentioned like, oh, in January, this always happens. And my question to you would be what changed even within the last month or even thinking two to three months prior. So the holidays, is this a stressful time for for you? You know, like, were you traveling more Was your sleep diminished? Were you eating differently? Was your blood sugar imbalanced? All of those things are going to show up in your cycle. Not immediately necessarily. It can be those like two to three months later. I know a lot of people when they got the vaccine, the vaccine, I'm not going to say it, but their cycle changed three months or so later. Maybe the length of it, the intensity, how all of the details that we've been talking about today. And that's because that any vaccine, most vaccines are eliciting this immune response in your body, which is also a stress response. So if you get sick or you have some sort of uptick in that immune response, that is going to impact your cycle. If you're under eating, this is a huge one. If you are under eating, dieting, over-exercising, those can have very immediate changes too. So you might bleed early. You might have spotting. And that's because those are breakthrough bleeds where it's not your period that's coming. It's that your body's in this like stressed out mode. It's like, I don't even know what's going on. So obviously you're not going to get pregnant <laughs> probably at that time because of that stress response. Yeah. And Nora, do you notice this yourself if you're traveling and eating different? Like, does your cycle change? 
So I, I mentioned in my own personal story that when I lost my dad, like the three months after that, my cycle was awful. Like I had so much pain and cramping leading up to my cycle that I really hadn't been experiencing for a long time. And just being able to connect those dots is so helpful in knowing like, this is not my new forever. This is hopefully a one-time thing. Traveling, I can't say like I did. I'm on my bleed too. I just got my bleed yesterday. So we're synced up. I'm drinking my time of the month tea <laughs> from Mariah. It's delicious. I felt like a little bit more heaviness, I would say, than normal. And that could be because I've been traveling and eating differently and things, but nothing like it still came around the same time. And I don't have a lot of PMS symptoms in general anymore, which I'm very grateful for. I definitely notice. So my cycle is usually 26, 27 days. This month it was 23 days and I traveled this month. Like I notice it, it shortens, you know, if things have changed, if I'm not getting, I didn't get as much sleep while we were traveling. And it's so fulfilling almost to just know because I do track my cycle religiously and I'm like expecting it to be 26 days, 27 days and for it to be 23. And I'm like, makes sense. Like, that's great. You know? So I think it's just creating that awareness and then having the awareness of like, what did I do last month? What have I been, what does my lifestyle look like? And it's a great way too to kind of like check in on what care you need to take on yourself. I think as women, we're people pleasers often, we're always doing stuff for other people. And if we can just see like, oh, maybe it's worth taking an extra minute and thinking about what I can do for myself this month, that can kind of get me back to my normal. Yeah, I love that. I mean, so much goodness in that. And just the self-compassion piece is huge. The way that we talk to ourselves, the way we treat ourselves is so important. Again, this extends far beyond the period conversation that we're having today. But just having this knowledge in your back pocket and understanding can give you the capacity or the tools to be like, oh, I get why things are a little different this month because of XYZ. And I think that's really helpful for, especially if you're like fertility or family planning, like, okay, these three months leading up to when we want to start trying, I'm going to double down on things. Like I am absolutely prioritizing sleep. I am reducing my alcohol intake. I am nourishing my body adequately. I'm getting high nutrient dense foods. I'm moving my body in a kind way. Like all of those things that you know are going to show up in the quality of your egg egg quality and your health and just your cycle and being able to be consistent, like all of those health behaviors. I think just remember too, like stress comes from so many different angles and is a huge part of it. So whether it's emotional stress, which obviously we're all like, the world is throwing so many things at us, or there's always some form of stress, but if we can have stress reducing behaviors, whatever that looks like for you, but there's also like over-exercising is a form of stress. I'm not getting enough sleep is a form of stress. So, you know, I think there's a lot of- Under eating. Yeah, under eating. Like we can put stress on our bodies in so many different ways. And that is a huge part of- our cycle. You know, our body cannot be under stress to have a healthy cycle because it wants to be able to have a safe place to make a baby. And all the things that I just named too are a privilege. I want to call that out too, because, you know, I was listening back to one of the other episodes and it was like, some of these things can come off 
super privileged where like you don't have control over all of these things in your life. If you're a low income family and you're struggling to make ends meet and you don't have childcare and you're not able to sleep because your baby's sick and like access to resources, access to, I'm like getting emotional (laughs) thinking about it. Access to appropriate medical care and things is such a privilege. And I think not taking that for granted and like even having the ability to travel, the fact that that messes up our cycles, like something that we're so lucky to be able to even experience. So I just want to call that out here that like we experience so many daily things that we're fortunate to even be able to have maybe some adverse outcomes because of those behaviors. <laughs> yeah. And it's all relative to each of us as individuals, for sure. But even just that beautiful moment of gratitude was like de-stressing, right? Like if you can, like take a moment right now, everyone who's listening and just like open your eyes, look around. What are you grateful for? Like that is so distressing to our bodies to be in a state of gratitude and very present and what is available to us. So I love that you said that, Nora. It is truly our lives are a privilege and it's such a beautiful thing. I do want to round this episode out with some things that are not normal and that like huge red flags that I absolutely would get checked out with your doctor, your provider, somebody that you trust, who knows you. And just remembering at the end of the day, like, you know, your body better than anyone else. So if you have this gut feeling or you feel like something is really off, don't stop. Look into it that, you know... I'm not trying to scare anybody, but there are things that can be off or go haywire from our hormones, from our reproductive organs, and we want to be able to advocate for ourselves. So huge one is, and I talked a little bit about pain with intercourse, but if you're having like pelvic pain, deep pain, like really intense inflammatory pain, those are big signs. It can be something like pelvic inflammatory disease, which can come from sexually transmitted infections. That's obviously something that we want to have checked out or assessed for, like getting your annual OBGYN checkups, getting pap smears on a regular basis. I think the recommendation is every three years for people in their fertile years. Um, And that might be different for you too, if you've ever had an abnormal pap smear. So doing those things regularly, just getting things checked out. I know Monica, you just did kind of a breast exam and stuff like that. If you want to share how that's part of your regular checkup too. Yeah. I recently just shared about this on my personal Instagram and mostly just for awareness, I think too, for everyone listening of your annual wellness exam with your OBGYN, like it's covered. It doesn't cost you anything. Go and do it. If you have insurance. Yes. If you have insurance. I think everyone can have a wellness check and it's just like, if you're covered by insurance, go and do that. You get to have time with your provider, write down the questions that you have. If you're noticing things that seem abnormal to you, if you're experiencing any heightened symptoms and yes, ask the questions like what family history should I be asking about with my family? If that's available to you, like have those conversations with your family so you can go to your provider and say, this is my family history, whether it is breast cancer, whether it is cervical cancer, like any kind of family history is something you should be having a conversation with your doctor. I have breast cancer. My mom had breast cancer. So for me, I knew really early, this was a conversation that I wanted to start having with my doctor. I'm only 33, but I get annual mammograms because of my family history, when normally you don't have that offered to you until you're 40 plus. 
So it's really important that we can understand that and go to our doctor and we actually take advantage of that wellness check every year if it's available to us. It gives us an opportunity to just understand everything's looking good or have the conversations that we need to have. And I know that sometimes that can be really challenging with our providers, but I have found that just like going into my notes app on my phone or making a list and bringing it with me of like, I want to talk about these things and not letting them leave the room until you feel like you've really gotten the information that you want. Additionally, I think taking notes about their responses, you know, doctors swing in the room so quickly and they're like, (laughs) try this, this, this. And they're like spewing things out. And you're like, wait, can you write that down? Not being afraid to ask the question of like, can you spell that? Can you, you know, is there like, how can I look into this more? Or even like ask to record the sessions. You can listen to it back too. Yeah. I just find like I've learned so much over the years of going to my annual exam because I'll leave and be like, I don't remember anything that just happened. It was such a whirlwind. And then my pants were off and they were inside me. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like, it is an uncomfortable and vulnerable place, but we should be able to have those conversations, remember them. So I'm just very passionate about like women taking advantage of what is available to them as well as understanding family history. Yeah. Other things that are not normal are very extreme cramping, pain, debilitating bleeds. You know, I've had people who can't work when they're on their cycle. Like that is not normal. Those are things that we absolutely need to be addressing and treating the underlying drivers and issues of that. I have people that experience a lot of nausea and vomiting when their period is starting because of the pain. Those are things that we need to be addressing. Yeah, those are some really big ones. And then from a mood standpoint, like if you have suicidal ideation in the days leading up to your cycle, if you have very strong mood swings, like those are things that we need to talk to our provider about. And there's no shame. Our bodies navigate or experience changes in hormones differently. I know that's a big experience for individuals with PMDD, especially we've talked about this here before, but just even knowing that like, if this is tied somewhat to your cycle, if it's in a cyclical nature, we should be able to do something about that. Does not need to be here forever. Yeah. I think a good like radar system too, is like, if you're having to stay home from work or not go to school because of your periods, like that's a definite signal to seek support. Yeah. And then obviously any like super irregular missed cycles or not ovulating, those are called anovulatory cycles. Those can be common, but not necessarily normal, especially if you're in your most fertile years. Just as a caveat, I wanted to mention this in the absolute beginning, but it can take up to 10 years from the onset of us getting our period to really entering into those like true fertile years where things are more normal, regular, predictable. So if you didn't get your cycle until you were 15 and you're 25 now, like you could really just be entering into that normal time. And if you were on any sort of hormonal birth control, it can take time. Like give your body literally years. My cycle has changed so dramatically in the years coming off of the pill. It's night and day in a good way. Like I used to bleed for eight days, now I bleed for five. Like, that's a huge quality of life thing. My cycles are more predictable, normal. I don't have the PMS, all of the things. So knowing that that's possible, and especially, again, if you're thinking about family planning, like giving the most time you possibly can before trying to conceive just to buffer in for the fact that 
your cycle might not return right away. You might have to do some of this work, having grace and acceptance for that too. Yeah. So much good information today. And I feel like it's going to create a lot of follow-up questions as well. So I just want to share a couple of the other episodes that I think will be really helpful. If you listen today and you're like, okay, I want to track my cycle. Season one, episode seven is the menstrual cycle has how many phases? And that one is all about the four phases of the menstrual cycle, where you'll learn more about each phase, as well as season two, episode two is cycle syncing. So that kind of like piggybacks on learning about the menstrual phases of how to optimize in each phase, which can be really supportive too, if you are noticing some abnormalities of just kind of like syncing up a little bit. And then season one, episode four is what is a hormone imbalance. So kind of just keying in on some of the hormonal symptoms that you might experience that might indicate hormone imbalance. So there's a lot of good information that we've shared on the podcast. And I love hearing from all of you that you've been binging it. And then you're like in our DMs asking questions that like lights me up so much. Yeah, so much joy from doing this podcast. So much. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. So with that said, if you learned anything today, definitely go and leave us a review. It's really helpful. We love hearing from you. And if you have more questions, come and ask them. We're going to do a Q&A episode. We do that every season. So that is coming up. If your question didn't get answered today, it may be answered in that episode. So come back and we will see you all next week. Thanks for being here. 